Today we're going to be looking at uh, a study of the fours, but these are not all of the things that he talked about, that there are these four things. They're just these four that we're going to look at today. Uh, but I like uh, that compilation because it helps uh, me to remember something. Like we talk about the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the, you know. And uh, it's true, his disciples were called the um, uh, happy ones, but they were also called the um, analytical ones, you know, because they had a belief, but the belief wasn't a blind belief. It was based on something. So it was, uh, the practice was very pragmatic. It wasn't um, pessimistic. It wasn't optimistic. It was just realistic, you know. So just coming to the center. And the thing about realism is that you can just be there. Uh, you can just be there with it. It takes away some of the frou-frou. It takes away some of the fluff. It also takes away um, some of the uh, uh, attitudes that make us feel uh, put on the spot or embarrassed or uh, pointed to, you know, uh, so that we can like just look at something like it is, you know, and I don't have to own it. I don't have to claim it. I don't have to say it's me. I don't have to say it's mine. You know, we're just looking at this thing right here. And I mean, like sometimes the shoe fits, like, ouch, if it's a little tight in the room because I recognize, oh, that's an attitude I have. Oh, I do that thing sometimes. Uh, but it's just a recognition of the thing and where we find it, whether I find it in me, whether I recognize it in you. It's just the recognition of the thing, and we don't have to Im uh, impute that upon or put that upon anyone and say, you are. You are bad. I am this. You know, we are that. It's just recognizing the thing. And anywhere, you know, if it's if it's good quality, like, you know, just keep going with it without any uh, ego or pride. If it's not a good quality, abandon it. Figure out how to get how, figure out how to get rid of it. Not not just like I I I I should get rid of it, but actually doing the things that it takes to get rid of it. And so we're going to talk about. Um, how to uh, embody the Dharma on these Tuesdays. And it does take some background in what the Dharma says about things. So uh, we'll talk about the Four Noble Truths, the Four Brahma Viharas, the Four Bodhisattva Vows, and the Four Immeasurables, or the Four Great uh, Wishes. You know, the, the aim of the Buddha's teachings uh, is to develop, develop uh, uh, a kind of reflective mind um, in order to like just understand the nature of things, to be able to understand what is happening right here. If I really understood it, if I wasn't in confusion about it, or if I wasn't overcome in my emotions about it, then I could handle it. That's it. You know, and so we're developing a greater capacity to handle the vicissitudes of life, the constant changes in life, the constant issues that arise, and the multitude of perso personalities we come in contact, and the 10,000 views we all have. You know, um, 
that includes our own views that we know might not be the best view, but it's the one I've got right now, you know, based on something that happened to me or based on something uh, that was said or based on how I took something that happened or how I took something that was said. And this is the way of the unenlightened mind. It's the, it's the way that we are through our ignorance and our, our confusion. You know, it doesn't mean ignorance in the sense of dumb. It just means in the, in, in the sense of not really understanding how things come about, how this present moment has come about and not having the skillfulness to interact with it to make the next moment better. That's all. That's, that's all that we're trying to do. But the end result, result of that is uh, a meaningful life, a contentment in our, in our waking hours and the, and the ability to rest peacefully at night. The end result of that is to to have uh, experience of wellness in the body and in the mind. The result, end result of that is uh, to be uh, a useful, uh, have purpose, have a sense of connection. All of these things are the end result of that on a, on a, a sort of functional here and now level. And then when we penetrate to a certain understanding on a more ultimate level, it is absolute freeing or freedom, you know from being, freedom from becoming. And that's way down the, the road. He said, you know, the best way to unpack something is not to start within the beginning. He said, start from right where you are and take one step back and just see how this moment came to be. And when we got that, take one more step back. And so we kind of unpack things this way instead of jumping to the beginning or going to the end. But our minds like to do that. It likes to jump to the beginning when we haven't even understood the present moment. And we want to go all the way back to the beginning and like, like where did I come from and, uh, you know, and all of these kinds of things, you know. How did the, how did the world come to be? Now he said, just start right here, right here with this. This bit of confusion that we have in our mind right now, this bit of stoniness that we have in our heart right now, this, start with this and just try to unpack that, just gradually, gradually. Take baby steps forward and, and just take one looky-see backwards. And then when we've got that, then we can expand upon that. So... When we are cultivating or developing a reflective mind, you know, uh, it's, the mind is not forming an opinion, actually, about, you know, whether this thing is good or whether it's bad. That, you know, that's ascribing a judgment to it. And yes, we speak in terms of good and bad and wholesome and not wholesome. And he talks about dividing uh, into uh, categories. We could, he says two kinds of thought, for instance, if we were doing a study on the twos. Two kinds of thought, you know, wholesome or unwholesome, beneficial or unbeneficial. Okay, so we talk about these kinds of things, but in the beginning, the mind is not really forming an opinion about whether things are good or bad or useful or useless. It's actually learning to open. The mind just becoming open and considering, what does this mean? What, what is this pointing to? What is my responsibility to know, to know this? 
Um, how do I put this into practice? How do I flow in this? It's not like hearing something like, well, I don't agree with that. Well, I mean, you know, but that's our usual um, mindset because we're always going back into the tickless of our mind and trying to pull up something we already heard, already know, you know, or already think or already do and try to see like where this fits with that, whether I want to look at it or not, or whether I want to absolute reject it. But the Buddha said on the night of his awakening uh, that something else happened for him. He said, and he explained it, and, and he tagged each insight that he had with this statement. Such was the vision, the insight, the wisdom, the knowing, and the light that arose where in me about what? Things not heard before. So he's talking about a, a vision and a light arising within one about things not heard before. So he wasn't, you know, comparing uh, what came up, uh, what he wasn't comparing it to something that he already knew. He wasn't using as the, the, the litmus, he wasn't using as the standard what he already knew. Because if we do that, we close off the capacity to know anymore. If it has to measure up with what we already know, then we're closed off from knowing anything more. And so he says, don't use that as the standard. Suspend, if you will, for a moment what you know. It's like a, a, a glass that is topped off with water. <laughs> you can't put any more in it. And so everything is evaluated according to what I already know. And it gets rejected. It gets compromised. It cannot really be heard for what's uh, for on its own merit because there's always this comparing. You know. And yet we're somewhere trying to hear something because what we already heard has not been enough to bring us the kind of, of happiness and meaningfulness in life. So we go to hear something else, but we just start slicing and dicing it and fitting it into the categories of what we are. And this is our human tendency. So he's saying, that's why we have so much suffering, but I'm going to show you a way out. But it starts with this kind of flexibility. I can't tell you how many people come. And they come with all the things that they already heard, already know, already do, and they want to put this in here. And, you know, it's... Uh, and not really understand, never coming to sit to see what is here, to sit and hear what is being said, to ponder or review that only, well, this is the way I look at it. This is the way I like to explain it. This is the way I like to talk about it. You know, but that's how the unenlightened mind does. So he's pointing us to something. How we... The, get in the posture, to get into the groove, to be able to uh, have an encounter with things not heard before. 
and to allow the light of wisdom that is already resident in us enough to take us over the top, to allow it to come forth in its fullness. So the insight comes through reflection. We might have that flash of insight, and sometimes it's so profound that it literally blows our mind. You know, and those are good. I like it sort of in between so that I can get this great insight and I can still function. You know, but sometimes an insight is so powerful, it literally blows our mind. And some people, uh, I, I, it's kind of like I, when I, uh, I don't like to, I don't like to cook. I like to serve people. So if I'm cooking something, you know, with the idea of a service, like I, it's my day to, to do the lunch, you know, for the retreat and something like that, I find such joy in that. I'm so happy that it wouldn't matter whether I was cooking or whether I was sharing Dharma or doing anything else because the idea was around service. But if it's just cooking for cooking's sake, that's not my thing. And uh, it's amazing how the same thing can be so different, you know, how you can approach it, uh, uh, you can grok with it or not, you know. Uh, but, um, and so, so I asked my husband for pressure cooker because, you know, the way we used to cook greens, I don't anymore now that I'm with all of these healthy people and they still like the stuff green. Um, so, so we like only cook greens, I don't know, 15 minutes or 20 minutes, something like that. But when I came up, we cooked them for hours, you know. And, um, and so I just wanted to hurry up and be done with it. So I asked for a pressure cooker because you could cook them in, you know, 15 minutes, you know. And they'd still come out like they'd been cooked for hours the way uh, we used to like to eat them. And so he got me a pressure cooker, and I'm like all in the kitchen excited, and, and I'm cooking these greens. I didn't know how to work the pressure cooker. Uh, wait a minute. Was that my husband, or was that later? Did, were you the one who threw the pressure? Okay, okay. So then, so, so, uh, so. I got. I have the pressure cooker when I'm cooking. All of a sudden, there's this huge explosion. The the top flies up and hits the ceiling, and the food's all over. And the food is all over the room. Now that's what happens sometimes when people have uh, an insight that is so great, and uh, they haven't. Uh, gradually prepared for it, and it completely blows their mind. I had a friend like that, and she was, uh, she was crazy for four years. And then she gradually came back to herself. And now she's a, she's a wonderful, a wonderful teacher. But I mean, so much came to her, and she opened that portal so She was writing hieroglyphics all over the walls. The thing is, though, she had a child. We had to, like, tend to her child, take care of her. While, you know, we knew she'd had a great insight, but it was more than what she could handle. And I mean, it was really hieroglyphics. We got somebody to come and see. And she never studied that. She never. You know, I don't know how you train in writing hieroglyphics, but, 
but she had no connection with that. But in something else uh, that she was uh, studying and some connections she was having with, with uh, uh, different beings and, you know, and something was opened up to her because she was open and receptive to it, but without the developmental training to be able to handle it, and it blew her mind. But we can come back from that if we will let those whose minds have not been blown work with us. And although we may think that they know less, the Buddha said the gradual path is the best. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, until we come into the fullness of the knowledge. So um, I, I keep that in mind about the knowing arising in me. It means that we're not going to really get it from tuition, uh, from tuition, from somebody teaching us something. They may throw out something, but there's something that we have to do in here that allows the true knowledge, what they were pointing to, to arise in here. And then it transforms or exponentiates, if that's a word, <laughs> uh, beyond the tuition. And there is that or those things that have not been heard before. So, this developing a capacity for reflection is the, is the first thing that we need to know. And that concretizes maybe into a belief that is born on uh, investigation and agreement and assimilation, um, the mind being open and receptive, uh, pondering and considering. Uh, so it's something uh, like uh, we have our opinions and we have our ideas, and that can devolve into a very low state, you know. But when we're pondering and considering, it can uh, elevate us and it can elevate everyone around us. Okay, then one's mental state is important because it's the foundation upon which the journey to awakening is built and, uh, and the way out of suffering. The mind has fixed views, we have our own uh, prejudices, we have our own preferences, and, um, and actually it's not ready uh, uh, capable of achieving enlightenment because of that. You know, we have to be open to something. And so the Buddha started with when we're coming to things not heard, he started with the four noble truths. I like to call them the ennobling truths. They point us to a possible nobility. Um, and the first one, if you can 
read it is the truth of the second is the third uh, I think they're recording so the people won't be able to hear it who's listening to the recording okay so the first is the the truth of uh-huh the second is the truth of the third is the truth of and the fourth is the truth of Okay, and so he went on to say this, that dukkha should be understood. Its cause should be abandoned. Its sensation should be realized or attained. And the way leading to the cessation should be developed or cultivated. So we have to understand it to be able to abandon it. When we abandon it, its cessation is attained or realized, and there's a way to go about this. And that's what the teaching is. Okay. So we can start with the word dukkha. Let's understand what dukkha is. Today I'm not going to go into the different kinds of dukkha, although he talked about different kinds of dukkha. Maybe I'll leave that for an investigation, an inquiry for you this week. Um, but the word dukkha, it has been translated as suffering. And maybe that's not the best translation. So for now, I'm sort of vacillating between suffering and dukkha until you get used to the word dukkha, then I'll drop suffering and we'll just leave it as dukkha. Okay. But dukkha, uh, suffering is, uh, or pain, it's too narrow of a word to define the dukkha that the Buddha was talking about. Um, but it's, um, it's like a, a, a disquieting, what is causing an, this uh, feeling of disquiet, this discontent, this unsatisfactoriness, this uneasiness, this, you know, it's a, a very broad word that speaks to our uh, overall experience of things, no matter how much we get, we're not satisfied. When we say we want something, we get it two months later. Well, I don't even know why I got this. It no longer gives us the ha happiness that we thought it would. We want this particular man or this particular woman. After we get them, like, like we got to fix them, right? We have to figure out, like, uh, how to change them. We're not, we're no longer satisfied. We, no, uh, we, no matter what we have, we're always looking at, at something else. You know, the one who, uh, uh, who has a career wishes that they were free, and the one who's free wishes they had a career. It's like we're always looking for something else out here for our contentment. And that's what he said that we should understand. That what is causing me, I need to look at what is causing me to be disturbed inwardly, and I need to investigate that. And usually it has to do with something or something out there that's not meeting 
my expectation or my or my desire is not happening the way we I wanted it to happen. It's not going according to the plan. We're not keeping to the schedule. We're not, you know, it's just like we uh so really it's around our craving, craving for things to be different than they are at the moment. That's the cause of dukkha. But it just becomes a little flip when we say it sometimes, you know, because we got these little pat. You know, every, uh, every um, uh, religion or, 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 uh, or whatever has its own jargon. So uh, these people speak like this, and this group of people, they speak like that. And so we have these words about seeing the nature of reality and accepting things as they are. And, you know, like, what the hell does that mean? I mean, you know, we're just using these catchphrases, these words, as if we know what they mean, you know, because the more of them I learn, you know, I find the more people respect me and think I know something. And so, uh, and sometimes I like even fool myself and think I do too. And so, uh, so we have to be careful about these things. We have to be willing to really unpack them and sit with them and say like, what does, what the heck does that really, really mean? What does it mean? Uh, what does it mean to me? But when we do that, you know, uh, recognizing that any disquieting I have right now is an aversion to what's happening right now. But sometimes it's an aversion to what I'm thinking right now. You know, this disquieting. I know I shouldn't be thinking this way, you know. Um, let me just think one more hateful thought, then I'm going to get off it. Then I'm going to abandon it. I, I know I shouldn't be feeling that way, but just let me think one more thing about it. You know. So, so ultimately, if we keep looking at it that way, you know, when, as thoughts are arising, because they're constantly arising. Like, I don't like her voice. I don't like the way she looks. That hairstyle, mm. I, you know, it's just a, it's constant discriminating. Constant everywhere our eyes fall, everything our ears hear, everything our tongue touches, tastes, everything that touches our body, everything that we think. Did I get all of them? If I sound and smell and everything that we smell. I mean, uh, taking, making contact and then having our judgment of it, having, you know, our view of it. That's what we do all day long, all day, all day, that's what we do. And so ultimately though, when we look at uh, this whole issue, we realize that the, the greatest wrong view that we have is this sense of separation and this sense of I-ness. It is a, a, a sense of an of a I that's evaluating a you, an I that's evaluating a this situation, an I that's, you know, so we are seated on our throne of I-ness at the central spot of life. I'll just say life because our life is the real life that matters. I mean, y'all matter too, but it's really my life that matters, you know. And everything is viewed from that uh, platform of me, my, and mine. Now, we say this all the time. 
But yet, every day when we get up, we start the same rigmarole. And so he asks us to be reflective. Not reactive, but reflective. That is the primary practice, is to be reflective moment by moment by moment. And it starts with doing something entirely different than what we've done all of our lives, which is uh, judging, uh, using discrimination, you know, uh, because we do have to use it. But he's showing us that there's something we got to back up and put into place before the discrimination will be right discrimination, you know, before the judgment will be a, 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 a right judgment. And so he takes us to this pathway of reflecting. Now, that's one end of it, like what's happening right now? Like, what am I thinking right now? So just take 15 seconds to just pull up your last thought. And then ask yourself, what did that thought produce in me? What did that uh, feel like? What would the abandonment of that thought be like? What, you know, just, you don't have to ask why, but how did that come about? And we can see that it came about because of something we saw or heard or tasted or touched or smelled, you know, and, or thought about previously that this thought piggybacked on that thought. So the other extreme or the other end of that spectrum of what is true is that the Buddha said, contrary to what most of us believe, there's no self that exists anywhere, <laughs> either within us or outside of us. Now, that's a toughie. You know, that's a toughie. I mean, you can't, like, just start with that. You start with that, there's nowhere to go. That's at the end of the line. You start with that, there's nowhere to go. But he gives us a way to begin to massage it, to reflect on the truth of it. So an analogy would be to take a car and dismantle it. Lay all the pieces out. Where's the car? You have no car. You might have wheels. You might have chassis. You might, I don't know, have springs. You might have a motor, but you have no car. The same with a bicycle. Same with a building. You might have bricks and you have asphalt and you have wood and you, and you, you, know, you have glue and you have staples and you have carpet, but you have no house. It's only when you put it together in a certain way and identify that as 
house. Then, now we have house. And it's the same way when we look at, our, at form, earth, air, fire, space, water, the elements that create form, feeling, perception, consciousness, and volition. You put all those together and we've called it a sentient being. But if you broke any one of them out or apart, where is the being? The being does not exist as a separate, fixed entity. So now it's not about us walking around saying, like, well, you know, I'm not really a person. I'm, not, I'm really uh, the elements and consciousness and, you know, I mean, we don't have to do that, but it's just knowing. For something to be useful, we need to know its makeup and how to use it. And so he says, if you look at it, that's really true. Sometimes when people really begin to see this, they get confused. They, they call us up like, uh, I don't know how to, how to relate or how to refer to myself now. Do, uh, as a, you know, I, I don't know what to say. Just, just keep on saying I, okay, so I know who you're talking about. You know, I mean, so we don't have to uh, uh, shift our words. We shift our understanding about things. But the other part of that is that he says that uh, although we need this necessary linguistic, you know, for some differentiation, he says that but when we regard a person as actually the process of this continually changing mental and physical components, then um, that arise and vanishes according like Let's say something happens to me in the next moment, then I become changed. I'm not the Panyawadi that I was a minute ago by virtue of this incident that arose in my life that shifted something, that informed something, that maybe cut off one arm. That, you know. So there's this constant changing. Even you're not the same as when you came in this morning before we started this Dharma talk because there's something else in your consciousness, in the knowing that shifts who you were just 30 minutes ago. So this is constantly happening to us. And he said this realization opens us up to a different way of understanding the world, a different way of being in this world, and a different way of understanding others in the world. So it takes uh, a special willingness to ponder and investigate and move past the obvious. Um, it takes a willingness to look at our own reactions, to recognize our attachments, and to contemplate what is happening right now. What does this feel like? What if I abandon this? But, you know, just pondering and not acting so quickly, but pondering requires a sitting, a settling in, uh, allowing something to uh, cook, to, um, and then allowing something else to germinate or grow out of that. This is our daily practice. 
This is what we do. It's not so much our prayers, although we pray. It's not so much looking to um, holy beings, although we acknowledge that they are there. And the same way I can support you as a human being, a holy being can, can support me as a holy being. I mean, it's like not like we don't need anything and we don't need anybody. In one sense, we have to be a lamp unto our, our, our own feet, a light unto our own path. But on the other hand, we're all in the cosmic suit together. So there's a respect and there's a recognition for others, for other human beings, for other sentient beings, including heavenly beings, and including, um, I mean, something as simple as the flowers and the trees. Forget about the frogs and the birds and the bees, even the flowers and the trees. Wherever, you know, there is that uh, sentience, it's alive, it's living. Sometimes people then begin to get confused because they hop. Uh, that means like, uh, And maybe we can't breathe because every time we breathe, we're killing beings, right? Or we can't eat because we can only eat living things to have life, you know. So in some way, we are taking life all the time. But we lessen our taking of life. We have gratitude for uh, those beings that give their life so that we can have life. And in this way, we don't become fanatical. So it's always working with things in tandem uh, with a balance with your own capacity to work with them. Not somebody else's. Not what rule you put on me. You know, but what I realize within myself, and just learning to operate in that. If we did that, there wouldn't be a sense of being inadequate. We wouldn't have a, 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 a low self-esteem. We would have a balanced esteem. We wouldn't need other people to make us feel important or valued. We, we need to spend time with ourselves, coming to know ourselves. That's why he said to know the Dharma is to know oneself. But when we really start to know ourselves, who we truly are, to know oneself is to forget oneself. And to know the 10,000 things. Oh. So, okay, I, I wanted to be able to go into a little deeper part of one of the four. We'll have to continue, but I'd like to briefly touch on the other three.
let me let me just close out uh, this self thing, you know. Um, we have to admit if we look like the dismantling of the bicycle, dismantling of our form, feeling perceptions, you know, volition and consciousness, that uh, there is no enduring self or ego, right? Mm -hmm. um, so this notion of an I or mine, even though we conventionally speak in those terms, is a great delusion. And if we realize it, that we know then that this great delusion forms the basis of all suffering. If we can get that, our suffering will be extinguished. If we can't get that, we have to extinguish sufferings one by one. I like just rather like go for the whole thing, lay the axe to the root of self. I lay the axe to the root of all suffering. But if I can't do that, then just eliminate them one by one. And every time we eliminate one, there will be a little bit of relief, a little bit of release. So we use meditation and contemplation, which is like investigation. We use uh, cultivation of, of superior mental states, which I'm getting ready to talk about now. Um, and the development of a kind of, of noble spiritual stature, uh, which is like a capacity to live a meaningful life of respect for ourselves, for others, and for service. In this way, we find fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And it requires a commitment to something, though. One, self-discipline. Not others disciplining us, self-discipline. It requires self-humility. You know, having an humbleness of, of stature within oneself. I don't care whether you, from the president to the to the, you know, to the garbage collector, you know, a certain kind of humility that I'm no better than anyone else. I'm not greater than anyone else. We operate all in our capacities and we need all of these things. You think we don't let the garbage man not come around for a month. You'll change, he'll be more important to you than the president, I guarantee, you know. And so um, really seeing things like that, uh, it's a rectitude, a, a just a really rectifying things. You know, we're having a lot of issues and conversations right now, you know, ab about, about race and about understanding uh, racism and all these things. But until we start talking about rectifying things, we're not talking about anything. You know, we're just talking, you know. And so... So there is more to it than just talking. We have to make amends in, uh, or, even, or at least have a heart towards making amends. Sometimes it's just not possible to make amends. Sometimes you find out you're wrong, you just stop doing that, you know? I mean, sometimes it's more painful even to pull it out and to keep rehashing it, you know? But you do have to stop doing it. And so, so this is how we have to approach things from a, a, a way of, of, of rectifying, ceasing to do what is harmful, you know, and doing what's good. And where we can rectify, then we should do that. And then ultimately, the practice of effacement, the rubbing out of self. And I tell you, self does not get rubbed out by thinking about it. 
it gets rubbed out in the face of, um, I would say in the face of adversity, it's in the moment. It's when you shout at me, or when you call me that name, or when you, you know, uh, uh, or when you steal something from me, or when you, you know, how will I respond to you in that moment? How will I, how will, how will I regard you in that moment? It doesn't mean you just let people do anything they want to do. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how you contain the moment with a proper response or reaction that, that does not take you into the same kind of, of impulse, of anger, or of, of hatred, or of rage, or of disrespect, or of, you know, like that. Uh, that's what effacement is, and that can only be practiced in real time. I mean, you know, a monks go up on the mountaintop, and they're all alone, and they're like, I'm the most patient person in the world. I'm the most loving. I'm the most kind, because they don't have to deal with anybody, and they don't have to deal with anything. Um, but when they come down from, from the mountaintop, they, they uh, you know, are contrary, and they, and they recognize, may recognize, that they have completely missed the mark because it was easy to do that when there was nobody you had uh, to do it with, no one uh, to practice on. But we come down and they find, oh, I'm not as, as skilled, I'm not as enlightened as I thought I was. Mm. And so, but this way, in uh, uh, being practicing it and seeing how well we did, like I didn't do so good, I let my anger get the best of me, I didn't do so good, I let my whatever. But Reflecting, again, that reflective mind. Next time, I'm going to do this. And then the next time comes, like, and it pops up. You say, next time, I'm going to, yeah, I meant the next, next time. <laughs> you know, yeah. But then the time comes where this is the time. Now is the time. This is the hour. And I have enough strength to do it. And I do it. And I said, how did that feel? That felt like crap. You know, I didn't like it. It didn't feel good. But along with that comes some sense that one of accomplishment. And that little bit of sense of accomplishment will help you the next time to be able to do it again and again and again. Then after a while, someone can say, say something really untoward and say, no, she didn't. What she just say? You know, and we can either correct it or we can let it walk on by. But it doesn't have the stab to it. You know what I mean? It doesn't have the great insult. It just shows their great ignorance. It doesn't have the impact that it had before. But we do this gradually, step by step. We do it gradually, step by step, and so do others. That means that we have to tolerate other people missing the mark all the time. And so as we do this, we shift and we change, and we find our true capacity to hold the vicissitudes of life. What helps us is to cultivate a certain mental state. These four mental states, are, and if you can share them with me. Loving kindness, compassion, altruistic joy, and equanimity. 
Okay, so loving kindness, the practice of loving kindness, and like loving, being kind, uproots hatred. You know, and we start that with thinking, feeling what kindness feels like in the body, how it impresses us, how we experience it, you know. And we allow that to arise in us and, we, and to feel it for ourselves. And when it tops up, it spills over then loving kindness for others. Then not even particular others that we think about, but just unbridled, just loving kindness itself as a force, as a power, as an energy wafting off of us, then barreling off of us. And, and then you'll find that you're always acting with a mind towards loving kindness. Kindness is rescuing someone when they're about to run off the precipice. It's not always the sweet words. The, the, it's not always the sugary, syrupy words. Sometimes that's not kindness at all. Sometimes that's just a, a me thing getting you into my confidence kind of thing. Uh, and especially if your mind is, you know, in a ditty and all over the place, this is my way of commanding control. You know, I can only control the ones who are weak in mind because my mind is not that strong. You know, and so you see people who seek out people who are weak because it gives them a certain strength, a certain sense of power. They can speak sweet-sounding sweet words, but it's really like, almost like making, mer making merchandise of people. So we have to look at our, our motives. We have to really understand our thoughts and what, what motivates us. So, uh, but when we cultivate loving kindness, you know, may every creature living creatures, something with two legs, four legs, a hundred legs, no legs. May they be well, may they be happy, may they be peaceful. May no harm come to them, may no danger come to them. And just thinking in this way. And then after a while the mind leans that way. And then, you know, when the first thing you mean, oh, here she comes, then the mind no longer thinks that way, oh, here she comes. The mind thinks, oh, here comes so-and-so. You're like, whoa, when did that change in me? I'm getting better. You know, and, and that's how we that's how we do. That's how and we don't even have to tell it, you know. So nobody will know we were thinking in that other way. Yeah. And but it will become genuine and it will become authentic. And the heaviness of the energies that we carried before will lift off of us and we become lighter, we become freer. So everything we do for others, we actually do for ourselves, yeah. Okay, so compassion, contemplating compassion uproots cruelty. Cultivating altruistic joys, joy in the successes of others, you know. 
like instead of like, well, how come I wasn't the one asked to do that? Or how come, you know, well, I did that before and they didn't notice me. Or I should have deserved that. Or not I should have, but they don't either. You know, I mean, why can't, you know, I, it appears lots of times that we, that we get something that we didn't deserve. Now, the law of cause and condition says that's not really so. But it appears when we're looking at somebody else and what we know about them, that little snapshot we have. You know, we think we know them all together because we see them three times a week, or we see them once a week, or we see them once a month, but we know them all together, right? And, uh, but in this way, it uproots um, the envy and the jealousy, you know, that we have around others having success at something. But it does something else too. It uproots our greed and our stinginess because we uh, become more inclined to help, inclined to support a good work, inclined to give of whatever our talents and our skills and, um, and our resources too. And then there's equanimity, which is uprooting aversion. Yeah. Just being able to be okay with the moment, with what is happening here. Uh, uprooting our discontent, uprooting impatience. And these are the mind states. He calls it the way leading upward. Um, love gets a little convoluted and confusing, but here he breaks it down in another way that we can ascribe action to it. I like, uh, um, I think it's 2 Corinthians 13. It says, love suffers long and is kind, is not envious and puffed up, seeks not its own. So are we really living that? If we're not, we're frauds. I mean, so if I'm a fraud, I'm a fraud. When I recognize I'm a fraud, if I don't want to be a fraud, then I start putting into place the methods, the putting forth the effort to transform into what I really want to be, what I say that I am. Okay, the four bodhisattva vows. If you read them for me, out loud, really loud. Sentient beings are numberless. I'm allowed to save them, free them. Desires are inexhaustible. I'm allowed to put an end to them. The Dharma gates its freedom are boundless. I'm allowed to master them. The Buddha awakened way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. Okay, so I just wanted to, to kind of, of quantify some of the words like when we say save, it means like like uh, to to free them, whatever I can do that brings forth the right understanding that allows them to release themselves from their suffering, not save like um, uh, taking on their um, 
uh, not like taking on the sins of the world and so you don't have to do anything like I, I got it all. I don't mean it in that way uh, because sometimes then we'll start to get into a martyr kind of state of mind that doesn't benefit us or anyone else because each person has to do its own work. But where we can participate and in that process with them, that's what I mean by save or free. Uh, the dharmas, you know, in this sense are the gates to freedom, the, the pathway out of, of suffering. Uh, and Buddha is awakened one, so that's the awakened the awakened mind, um, so that you have a frame of reference for the words. Okay, and these are the four bodhisattva vows, uh, and I'm going to be finished in five minutes. Okay, <clears throat> the there's an aspiration as a bodhisattva to become more attentive and available you know, to assist while becoming less self-absorbed. That, that's all a bodhisattva is. We, we have this fancy-schmancy way of saying bodhisattva is one who hears the cries of the world and responds with compassion and power, and that's good. But what does that mean? How do we, like, just break that down? It's, it's an aspiration to become more attentive to others and less self-absorbed. Um, Mm -hmm. And vows are expressions of what we, you know, what's truly important to us. Uh, and we try to keep them in mind in every activity, in thought, in speech, and in action. Now, historically, the Buddha spoke of the Bodhisattva. Um, he would say, while I was uh, meaning our Bodhi, meaning awakened sattva being, awakened being. And... Uh, and he would speak while I was an unenlightened bodhisattva, that's one destined to wake up. I did this or I thought that. He's saying, I understand you because I was that at one time. You know, and then, uh, but after the Buddha died, you know, and he even said, he asked, what was the purpose of going forth into to the homeless life? And then he answered the question because they didn't know. He said, to be a refuge for all beings. So if one thinks of oneself as the aspiration and the goal is to be a refuge for, for all beings, first I have to be the refuge, which means I have myself that I have to, uh, I have, to have a certain capacity. And when I have that capacity, with whatever capacity I have, that I offer as a container for others. So it's in this way that we think of the, the bodhisattva. Right now in our state, uh, not fully awakened as unenlightened bodhisattvas, but with that aspiration to be a, a refuge. And, but the uh, bodhisattva ideal arose several hundred years later because in the beginning, you know, the Buddha, he would teach them, then he, he, uh, they'd all come together for instruction, then they all dispersed to sit and meditate in a hut in the root of a tree, wherever. You know, they didn't come together to, to meditate for 30 minutes on three times a week. No, they went and they did their own practice. They got alone with themselves to know themselves and to reflect on the Dharma that he, he shared with them. 
And so this is the model that we find that is disconcerting to some because they can't meditate unless they get in a room with everybody else not talking. But we have to learn how to do that ourselves. Uh, and so the, uh, uh, the Buddha's disciples, um, his, his monks, well, we call them monks now, but they were the homeless ones then, uh, they started going out less and less. They started just going out on Pindabot, like going out with the begging bowl for their meal and coming back and eating and being just amongst themselves. And this is over the hundreds of years. It became sort of like a self-contained community that has nothing to do with those householders and, and, that, and that kind of thing. And so the Bodhisattva ideal came back in, into, into vogue. Uh, so uh, re-emphasizing that aspect of, of, uh, of the Dharmic walk, of the, spiritual, of the spiritual life. So they gradually lost interest in the, t in, in, in the teaching others. And it's just among, among themselves. And so as this movement of re-arose, they say it arose, but I say it re-arose because that's how it started. You know, and the Buddha would go out and he send his disciples out and, uh, and he said that if you haven't been doing that, sharing uh, the Dharma with people you're not deserving of the food, you know. But now they just go out on Pindabot, bring that back, and they, if you want to hear something, you know, uh, they're like, oh, you don't have to worry about that. Oh, you just do this, householder, you know, because it's too much effort to put up with um, uh, some of the behaviors that might be present when a person's not focusing their life on their spiritual practice, but incorporating it into their life, you know. And so we should get back to that. The ideal of the Bodhisattva puts the liberation of others on equal footing with one's own liberation. Hmm. And it moves to counter this kind of indifference. Most people come into a spiritual community mostly to get away from the world, you know. And there's a certain indifference there. You know it when you want to always be alone, don't want to be with others, don't want to cultivate what it takes to be with others, don't want to tolerate others, don't care about others, you know. And that's the exact opposite. And that's what we see in so many spiritual communities, you know. It's, it's what we see in, um, or contemplative, I'll say. So there is contemplation, right? There's a contemplative mindset, a way of being and moving, uh, but there is always that attentiveness towards others. Okay, and then the last one, the four immeasurables. May all beings find happiness and the causes of happiness. May all beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings abide continually in the bliss of true happiness. May they dwell in generosity and equanimity without measure. So this has to do with an attitude, you know, an attitude towards towards others. Waking up first thing in the morning, may all beings find their happiness and the causes of happiness. Not what I want to give them for happiness. My mother would always give us things she wanted to give us, but not the things we asked for. You know, if I say I want this and she wanted something else, she'd give me, she'd give me what she wanted. Uh, of course, I admit I wasn't grateful because that's not what I asked for. You know, and so I was ungrateful and she was self-serving and self-seeking. You know, I'm, 
and it, it's made for a bad combination, you know. But but you know what makes somebody somebody happy or content? I mean, why we want to knock that? Leave them, leave them with that. If it's not harming or hurting anybody, you know, if they have that view, that you know, why do we want to destroy that? Uh, leave them with that happiness, and and wish for them that that happiness, and what actually produces the causes of true happiness. That they be released from their suffering and what causes suffering and that they continually abide in that. And may they dwell in generosity and equanimity. Not just a little bit, not just a little bit less than mine, but without measure. Yeah. And uh, so I'd like to ask you if you will use these four uh, training guides this week and that if you take each day and you uh, read them, you know, read them out loud, hear the words, let them rum ruminate in you, um, allow whatever rises up, like where you're not quite in, in the place that you want to be with it. We recognize where we are strong, you know. We don't fool ourselves. We listen to what others say because I can think I'm all this. But if you tell me constantly that I'm not, maybe I'm not. <laughs> maybe I just think I am, you know. It's a way that we uh, are attentive to the others, uh, can receive instruction can learn something from each other, that we grow in self-humility um, and we find a meaningfulness in life. So I hope this has been helpful to you. And each Tuesday, we will go more into a, a particular teaching that we can take home a handout and work with that for that week. Okay. Thank you for coming today. May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you and no danger. May you always be able to meet the inevitable difficulties of life.